In the Bible, uh, we are given uh, several examples of people who were single, who lived their lives for the glory of God. I want you to turn, hold on to 1 Corinthians and turn back to Luke chapter 2. One of these examples of someone who is single, living for the glory of God. Luke chapter 2, we, we often don't think of this individual. There's only a few verses that mention this individual. Luke chapter 2 will begin at verse 36. This is soon after the birth of Jesus and his parents take him to uh, the temple uh, to dedicate him. Uh, and in verses 36 to 38, uh, we learn about a woman named Anna. Look at verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So here is this woman, Anna. Long time beforehand, her father, I'm sorry, her husband had died. And since then, she has been serving the Lord faithfully in the temple. And then she gets to, to, to witness the presentation of Jesus as his parents bring him to the temple to dedicate him. Another example of a single in the Bible. Uh, who lived to the glory of God is the Apostle Paul. Uh, think of all that the Apostle Paul did uh, in service of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Acts and also that we learn of in the epistles that he wrote. Uh, living as a single person for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ as he was taking the gospel uh, to further regions and further regions where the gospel had not yet been taken planting churches, caring for those churches, and continuing to bring the gospel further. And then there's the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. He's the ultimate example of someone who was single, living for the glory of God. Jesus never was married. He lived as a single, doing the will of His Father. Now I bring up these examples of singles who live for the glory of God because our text that we come to this morning focuses on singleness. So if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to read to us uh, verses 6 through 9. Uh, please stand in honor of the Word of God if you are able. Verse 6. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. Well, after I studied the first verse in this section, 
uh, verse 6, I do believe it actually fits more closely with the verses that we studied last week. If you look at verse 6, we read, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. Now the only thing that I see in the verses before and after verse 6 that can be seen as a concession is the permission that the Apostle Paul gives in verse 5 for married couples to abstain from sexual relations by agreement for a limited time for the purpose of prayer. Like back at verse 5, in verse 5 he said to married couples, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. In this verse, we have something that can be called a concession, the permission that the Apostle Paul gave uh, to married couples to abstain from sexual relations for a limited period of time uh, by agreement for the purpose of prayer. Paul spoke that as a concession, meaning that he gave permission for this, that, that he did not command this. Couples are not required to do this, but they are permitted to do so. So, if I could go back to last week, I would have included verse 6 um, in the verses that we studied last week, um, but because I didn't include that, um, I did need to comment on that right now. Now, in the rest of our text, the Apostle continues to majorly qualify something that the Corinthian church wrote in a letter to Paul that Paul quoted in verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now notice in the ESV there are quotation marks around uh, that second half of the verse. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I explained last week that I believe that here Paul is quoting from the letter that he mentions here in verse 1 that the Corinthian church had sent to the Apostle Paul. So he quotes from that letter, and then in this chapter he majorly qualifies that statement that they had made in their letter. Paul qualified that statement in verses 2 through 5 by teaching that married couples should regularly have sexual intimacy as husband and wife. And now Paul further qualifies the statement in verses 7 through 9 where he turns his attention from married couples to singles. In our text, we find three truths that you need to understand in order to have a biblical view of singleness and marriage. Three truths that you need to understand in order to have a biblical view of singleness and marriage. First of all, in verses 6 through 7, we are to understand your marital status is a gift from God. Understand your marital status is a gift from God. Look with me at verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. We see in this verse that Paul wishes that all were single as he himself is. That this is what Paul means becomes clear in verses 8 
and 9a. Look at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. So in verse 7, when Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, he's expressing a wish that all were single as he himself is. When Paul writes this letter, he is single. Now, it is very possible that Paul was married at some point before he was called as an apostle. For the Old Testament highly esteems marriage and commands mankind to be fruitful and multiply. And and the Jews of Paul's day recognized this and put a lot of weight on being married. And Paul does tell us that he was a model Jew. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 14, Paul wrote, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He also speaks of this in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. It is hard to see how Paul would have been viewed this way by his Jewish peers if he never was married. However, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he is single. Perhaps his wife died at a young age. Or perhaps Paul was always single and therefore a rare exception among the leaders of Judaism. However, this does not affect the interpretation of our text. Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, I wish that all were single as I myself am. Paul has experienced how beneficial singleness is for serving the Lord Jesus Christ. He would not want it to be any other way. And he would like everyone else to experience what he has experienced. Yet, at the same time, he knows that singleness is not for every Christian. Look at the second half of verse 7. He says, But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Here, the apostle calls singleness a gift from God. That's a gift that the apostle Paul has. And he indicates that God has given this gift to some, but not to others. And he indicates that other Christians have received a different gift. Here in verse 7, we see that both singleness and marriage are gifts from God, given by God as He pleases. Now, what are the purposes of such gifts? What are the purposes of the gifts of singleness and of marriage? Well, they have the same overarching purpose as all other earthly gifts from God. That is to be used in serving God. Their purpose is not all that different from the overarching purpose of the spiritual gifts mentioned in this epistle. I want you to go forward to chapter 12, verse 7. In chapters 12 and 14, 
The Apostle Paul will say much about spiritual gifts. Gifts that have been given by the Holy Spirit uh, to every Christian. Gifts that differ from person to person. Look at chapter 12, verse 7 to see the overarching purpose of the spiritual gifts that are spoken of in chapter 12. Paul says in verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. And that's a term that he uses for spiritual gifts. Manifestations of the Spirit. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. That is for the good of the whole congregation. The good of the whole church. Whether the gift is teaching, or leading, um, or mercy, or whatever... The spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the church, uh, for the well-being of the whole congregation. And Paul will speak much in chapters 12 and 14 about using the gifts for the edification of the church. The gifts are not given for our own uh, upbuilding or for exalting ourselves. The gifts are given for building up the body of Christ. If you come back to chapter 7, where Paul speaks of both singleness and marriage uh, being gifts from God, the purpose of these gifts is not all that different uh, from the purpose of the spiritual gifts in chapter 12. What we read here in verse 7 of our text is, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. If you are a Christian, and by God's sovereign design you are currently single, God has given you the gift of singleness for the time being so that you would serve Christ and edify His church. And Paul will say more about this later in the chapter. If you are a Christian, and by God's sovereign design you are currently married, God has given you the gift of marriage so that you would serve Christ. When two believers are married, God's purpose is that you would serve the Lord together in ways that you could not if you were single. Uh, This would include raising children in the training and admonition of the Lord for many. Uh, This would include for many showing hospitality in ways that many singles cannot. And this would include serving in the church as a couple. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, uh, speak of the benefit of two being together. and certainly applies to marriage. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they, fa- if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. When two are Two believers are married. God's purpose is that you would serve the Lord together in ways that you could not if you were single. And when a believer is married to an unbeliever, 
There are ways that you can uniquely serve the Lord. And Paul will talk about this in 1 Corinthians 7, in verses 13 and 14. Look down at verse 13. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. So the believing spouse who's married to an unbeliever has a special ministry from the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, you make your spouse holy. You, you are an influence for the Lord in the life of your spouse. And you make your children holy. You are an influence for the Lord in the lives of your children. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. That Paul calls singleness and marriage both gifts that are given to the Christian indicates that these are things that are to be used in service of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are to be used in the service of God. These are to be used for His glory. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. When Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7 of singleness and marriage being different gifts that he gives to different believers, it is helpful to understand where Paul is going. So look down in 1 Corinthians 7 at, at verse 17 to see where he's going. In verse 17 he says, Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. And then go down to verse 24. 24. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul speaks of different marital statuses that people have as um, the life that the Lord has assigned to him. The life to which God has called him in verse 17. If you are single, this is the life that the Lord has currently assigned to you and to which God has currently called you. Now, later on, he might call you to marriage. But right now, if you are single, this is the life the Lord has currently assigned to you and to which God has currently called you. If you are married right now, this is the life that the Lord has currently assigned to you and to which God has currently called you. Your Heavenly Father has a purpose for you having your current marital status. God is sovereign over our circumstances. He is sovereign over the marital status that we currently have and He has a purpose for you having the marital status that you currently have. Now there is some wrong thinking amongst Christians that a single person who struggles with being single does not have the gift of singleness. 
And I believe that is a wrong interpretation of what Paul says in this chapter. You have some people who are single, who really, really want to get married, and they might go through all their life not getting married, but being convinced that they don't have the gift of singleness. So there's going to be a lot of frustration on their part, thinking, I don't have the gift of singleness, but God's not providing me with a spouse. What am I to do? That's a wrong interpretation of this verse. This verse says that if you are single, that is a gift from God to be used right now for the glory of God, for the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to learn to embrace the teaching of our text that the believer's marital status, whether single or married, is a gift from God to be used in service of Christ, to be thankful for. If it's a gift from Him, I am to be thankful for it. Not discontent with it, thankful for it. And it's something with which I am to be content. Because this is what He has assigned to me right now. I am to be content with what He has assigned to me. It's called a gift from Him. I am to, to, be, to use this marital status in the service of Christ. I am to be thankful for it. I am to be content with it until the Lord brings about a change in my marital status. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, is this how you have been viewing your marital status? Whether you are single or you are married, is this how you have been viewing your singleness or being married? As a gift from God to be used for the glory of God, to be used in serving Christ and Christ's people. Too often Christians have a self-centered view of marital status. They focus on what they think will make them happy. They're more concerned about living the, either the unencumbered single life or living the fulfilled married life than using their marital status in service of Christ and in service of Christ's people. And this is godless. This is sinful. If we have a self-centered view of marital status. For the Christian single, singleness is to be about serving Christ. And for the Christian married person, being married is to be about serving Christ. These are two different walks of life. These are two different gifts, but both have the same overarching purpose. So let me ask you, brothers and sisters, are you thankful to God for your marital status? And are you using your marital status in service of Christ? You must understand from this first section that your marital status is a gift from your sovereign God. There's also a second truth that you need to understand in order to have a biblical view of singleness and marriage. In the second section, verse 8, we are to understand the goodness of singleness. We are to understand the goodness of of singleness. Look with me at verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, we have already seen the idea of remaining. If you look back down to verse 24 again, 
So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there, there let him remain with God. And Paul is going to speak of this when he addresses different people, different groups of people throughout this chapter. He's going to talk about remaining in the status that you are currently in. We have this idea here in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Now, the question is, whom is Paul addressing in verse 8? He addresses the unmarried and the widows. Who are the unmarried and the widows? Well, the second term, the widows, is straightforward. The Greek term from which this is translated is feminine. So it's talking about women, just like the English word widows. The Greek word means women whose husbands have died and who have not remarried. The other term is not as straightforward, the unmarried. Who are the unmarried? The Greek term is masculine, so it can refer to men or to both men and women. Because this term, the unmarried, um, is coupled with the term the widows, some interpret this first term, the unmarried, to mean the widowers, you know, men whose wives have died and who have not remarried. All right, so that Paul would be addressing the widowers and the widows. Uh, this is the only word um, that was used in the Greek of Paul's day for widowers this broader term, unmarried. Um, so, if he wanted to say the widowers and the widows, this would be an appropriate way for him to say it in Greek. Right. However, it is better to understand the term, the unmarried, to have a broader meaning, broader than just widowers, uh, here, um, as the term often does have a broader meaning. The term unmarried here does also include people who have never married. Let me give you two reasons for this interpretation. First of all, in verse 10a, Paul will address a second group of people. Look at it in verse 10. To the married, I give this charge. So first of all, in verse 8, he addresses the unmarried and the widows. Then in verse 10, he addresses the married. If in verse 10, Paul said to the husbands and the wives, then it would be consistent if in verse 8, he is saying to the widowers and the widows. But in verse 10, he doesn't say the husbands and the wives. He says to the married, which would suggest that here in verse 8, uh, the unmarried would be broader um, than widowers. Second, in verses 32 through 34, Paul clearly uses the term, the unmarried, to include people who have never been married. Go down to verse 32 to see how he uses this term, the unmarried. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. In these verses, Paul says something about a group of men in verse 32b through 34a. 
And then he says the same thing about a corresponding group of women in verse 34b. In verse 34, Paul contrasts on the one hand the unmarried or betrothed woman. Betrothed is literally virgin. The unmarried or betrothed virgin woman. A woman who's not been married. The unmarried or betrothed woman. He contrasts that with the married woman on the other hand. In verses 32 and 33, Paul makes the same contrast for the men. But the terms he uses are on the on the one hand, the unmarried man, and the married man on the other hand. So, the term, the unmarried man, is parallel to the term, the unmarried or betrothed woman. Which means that the unmarried man includes men who have never been married. As when he's talking to the women, it's very clear that he's including unmarried ones, because he uses the term virgin, literally, or betrothed, as ESV says. All right. So, knowing this helps you to understand who the Apostle addresses in verse 8 when he says, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. He addresses all who are not married. However, verse 9, what Paul will say in verse 9, generally does not apply to those who have been divorced. In verse 9 he will say, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Uh, this generally does not apply to those who have been divorced. Paul makes this clear in the following verses. Look at verse 10. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, we need to focus on what Paul says to the unmarried and the widows. Looking again at verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Why does Paul say this? That it is good for them to remain single as I am. I am. He has in mind the goodness of singleness that he will explain further on in the chapter. Go down to verse 28. In verse 28, he says, But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. He brings up that married people have worldly troubles that single people do not have. And then you go down to verse 32. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. The apostle is talking here about the benefits of singleness. When you are married, much of your time is devoted for, to caring for your family. 
Now, this is not a bad thing. Caring for a spouse, caring for children, it's not a bad thing. It is to be done to the glory of God. But Paul points out, it does limit you in some ways. Paul could not have had the ministry that we read of in the book of Acts and in his epistles if he were married. There's no way that he would have had that mobility, that freedom to do what we see he does as he takes the gospel to regions where the gospel had not gone, he plants churches, he goes from one place to the next, and so forth. He couldn't have done that with a family. Because he was single, he was able to serve in a certain way that he would not have been able to, to serve, in, serve in if he was caring for the needs of a wife, caring for the needs of children, and so forth. What we see here is you can't just say, well, you know, serving Jesus is more important than serving my wife or serving my husband or serving my children. So I'm going to pretty much abandon them. Maybe send off my children to be watched by someone else. Or I'm going to be away from my spouse 11 months of the year to do ministry. No, you can't do that. It is necessary in God's sight that those who are married would care for their spouse. They would care for their children. It's important we do it to the glory of God. But when we do that, we do not have the freedom that we would have in serving Christ if we were single. So Paul's talking about the advantages of singleness. The benefits of singleness. When you are single, you can devote more time and attention to communion alone with the Lord. When you are single, you can devote more time and attention to serving in the church. When you are single, you can evangelize more people. When you are single, you can disciple more people. When you are single, you have greater freedom and mobility as you do ministry. And so Paul said, back in verse 7a, he said, I wish that all were as myself am. And he says in verse 8, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. You must understand the goodness of singleness. It is not an inferior status. Singleness has its advantages. Singleness is not less spiritual than being married. Singleness is a noble calling for the Christian. What Paul says here counters the traditional Jewish understanding in Paul's day. The Old Testament does rightfully extol marriage, but that does not mean that the single who becomes a Christian now needs to get married because he is a Christian. You know, if you took common Jewish thinking in Paul's day, and you became a Christian, and you applied common Jewish thinking to this issue, you might think, well, now that I'm a Christian, um, I need to get married. In order to please God, I need to get married. No. No, not at all. For a Christian, being single is a noble calling. 
that Paul says has its great advantages. Now what Paul says here also counters the attitudes of many Christians who think that they have to be married in order to be satisfied. There are many Christians under the influence, I think, of the world, not under the influence of Scripture. There are many Christians who think that in order to be satisfied, they have to be married. And what we're seeing here counters that wrong thinking. Singleness is a gift from God with its advantages. And God has a purpose in having some people single. Singleness is good. And we are to recognize the goodness of singleness. Now verse 8 says, To the unmarried and the widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. This truth of the goodness of singleness is important to understand. It goes hand in hand with the first truth that we saw that your marital status is a gift from God. But this is not the whole picture. There's also a third truth that you need to understand in order to have a biblical view of singleness and marriage. In our third section, verse 9, we're to understand the goodness of marriage. So verse 8 was the goodness of singleness. Verse 9 is the goodness of marriage. Look at verse 9. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Note that Paul says, if they cannot exercise self-control. The New American Standard is more literal if they do not have self-control. The idea is that they struggle to exercise self-control. Now, in any situation, the person who is united to Christ and has the Holy Spirit can resist temptation. It's very important that we always keep this in mind. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, just two chapters over, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond what beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We have to cling to this verse. Right? We have a Heavenly Father who is sovereign over all the circumstances of our lives. And He is not going to allow a temptation, He's not going to allow us to face a temptation that is not going to have with it grace from God to overcome that temptation. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, while this is true, at the same time, some Christians will struggle more with some temptations than other Christians. And verse 9 of our text says that if Christians really struggle with temptations toward sexual lust and sexual immorality, then they should marry. Now, Paul said something similar to married couples back in verse 5. Look in chapter 7, at chapter 7, verse 5 to see what he said about that. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
And now in verse 9, Paul says, If singles cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. Meaning, they should seek to get married. Paul goes on in verse 9 saying, For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To burn with passion, literally, as the King James renders it, is simply to burn. Paul says, For it is better to marry than to burn. Now, this word is a common metaphor in the Greco-Roman world for having strong sexual passions, strong sexual desires. And this is clearly the meaning in this context. So the ESV translation is a good translation. As they translate it, it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The single person cannot gratify such passions in a holy way since the only place they can be rightly gratified is in a marriage relationship. And we've seen that earlier in our studies as in chapter 6, we were instructed to flee from sexual immorality, which is sexual relations outside of marriage. And we saw this further in the instructions earlier in chapter 7 to married people about sexual relations. So the single person cannot gratify such passions in a holy way. If God gives the opportunity to get married, it is better for the Christian to take that opportunity than to remain single and be consumed with passions that they cannot righteously gratify. Paul says this because marriage is a good thing. We see the goodness of marriage back in Genesis chapter 2. So I want you to go back to Genesis chapter 2. The book of Genesis records the beginnings of so many things. Uh, The beginning of the heavens and the earth. uh, The beginning of of marriage. Also the entrance of sin in chapter 3. Many beginnings. Genesis chapter 2, I wanted to begin at verse 18. In verse 18 we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So at this point, uh, God only created one human being. That was was Adam. And God says, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. or, Or comparable to him would be another translation. Verse 19, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. None of the animals were made in the image of God. None of the animals were comparable to Adam. They're a a lower creation than human life. Verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, 
and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All of that began in verse 18 with the Lord saying, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. A helper comparable to him. His, his equal. We see here the goodness of marriage. We also see the goodness of marriage in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 22. Proverbs 18, 22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. We also read about the goodness of marriage in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Hebrews 13, 4a says, Let marriage be held in honor among all. It's to be held in honor among all because it is something that is good in God's sight. Turn over to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2, and another passage that teaches the goodness of marriage. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2, I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. Verse 13. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking, godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Notice what is said here about godly offspring. In verse 15, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. If God is gracious, a godly marriage produces godly offspring. It's not guaranteed, but if God is gracious, a godly marriage produces godly offspring. Marriage is good whether we're looking at Genesis 2, whether we're looking at Proverbs 18, whether we're looking at Hebrews 13, whether we're looking at Malachi 2 with godly offspring. Marriage is good in God's sight. In God's design, marriage and family is the basic building block of society. And so if you attack marriage and family, you attack all of society. If marriage and family crumbles, so does all of society. In God's design, marriage and family is the basic building block of society. The Bible teaches the goodness of marriage. Now come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. 1 But if they cannot exercise self-control, that would be in sexual matters, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. If you struggle with sexual desire and God gives you the opportunity to get married, generally it would be good to get married. 
you would not be more spiritual by staying single. As verse 2 taught, marriage is a protection from sexual immorality. Not a guaranteed protection, but a help, a protection. Now when verse 9 says, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, it does not mean marry anyone who's willing to marry you. Nor does it mean that a spouse is easy to obtain. Nor does it mean that marriage is the solution for a lack of self-control. Let's take these three one by one of what this does not mean. First of all, it does not mean marry anyone who's willing to marry you. Marriage is a weighty decision requiring much wisdom. Think of how Samson and Solomon made foolish decisions to marry. And how very costly those foolish decisions were for Samson and for Solomon. Marriage is a lifelong commitment. Marriage is a one flesh relationship. You don't just get married on the spur of a moment to anyone. An unwise marriage decision can lead to grave consequences and to much regret and heartache. A Christian who desires to marry must look for a godly spouse who is walking in the same direction as they follow Christ. If you are struggling with the passions and temptations that verse 9 has in mind, those passions can make it difficult to make a wise decision regarding marriage. Strong feelings of any sort tend to dull judgment and make one vulnerable and careless. So it is important all the more when seeking a spouse to seek and to value godly counsel. You might not be thinking as clearly as God wants you to think when you're in this position. And so you seek godly counsel as you seek a spouse, as you consider an individual to marry, you seek godly counsel and you value that godly counsel, saying that your discernment may be somewhat impaired by the strong desires you currently have to be married. So, this verse does not mean marry anyone who's willing to marry you. You need to use wisdom, you need to use discernment, you need to seek counsel, you need to marry someone who is godly and who's following Christ, who's walking in the same direction as you, as you follow Christ. Secondly, verse 9 does not mean that a spouse is easy to obtain. You cannot just snap your fingers and have a godly spouse. To get married, what is even more important than finding a godly spouse is becoming a person who will be a godly spouse. Some Christians have sanctification to undergo before they could be a faithful husband or a faithful wife. It's a major commitment that you're making before God. That I will love you as my husband, I will love you as my wife until death do us part. I'll be a faithful husband to you, or I'll be a faithful wife to you. That's a major commitment. Some Christians have some sanctification to undergo before they could be a faithful husband or a faithful wife. And ultimately, 
A godly spouse is God's gracious provision. Though you may be godly and believe it is God's will for you to get married, and though you may make efforts to find a godly spouse, you must entrust your desire to be married to the Lord, looking to Him to provide you with a spouse whom He sees as fit for you in His perfect timing. You must entrust your desire to the Lord. Thirdly, verse 9 does not mean marriage is the solution for a lack of self-control. As I talked about when we were in verse 5, uh, some, uh, last week, lack of self-control is a heart issue. You don't lack self-control because of your circumstances. You lack self-control because of your heart. A lack of self-control is a heart issue. And while marriage can certainly reduce temptation of a sexual nature, it does not eliminate such temptation. You must fight the spiritual battle to be self-controlled. You must fight the spiritual battle to grow in self-control. Finding a spouse is not the solution for your self-control, for your lack of self-control. Now, what should you do if you want to find a spouse? Paul says here, uh, they, they, they should marry. So what should you do if you want to find a spouse? First of all, you should pray for a spouse. If you desire to get married, you should pray for a a spouse. Secondly, you should grow in friendships with Christian singles of the opposite sex. Grow in friendships with Christian singles of the opposite sex. The person that you marry should become your best friend. The Bible speaks of a spouse being a companion. Grow in friendships with Christian singles of the opposite sex if you want to find a spouse. Don't just sit back. Thirdly, attend your church's gatherings, including the church's gatherings with other churches. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you want to marry a godly individual, someone else who's faithfully following Christ, then you should get to know them in the local church. Attend the meetings of your local church. That you might get to know those whom the Lord brings to our church. Attend meetings that we have, gatherings that we have with other churches. We as a church, we we fellowship with other churches, we gather with other churches that are like-minded. That's a great opportunity to meet someone who is godly, who is following Christ. Fourth, ask godly people who know you well to be praying with you for a spouse and to help you find a godly spouse. Don't be so independent. Don't be so proud that you're just doing this on your own. Ask godly people who know you well to pray with you for a spouse and to help you to find a spouse. And then fifthly, be content recognizing that contentment with the Lord is more important than being married. This can often be a struggle for us. When we are single, 
and we want to be married, being content with the Lord as a single. If you are not content with the Lord as a single, and you have this strong desire to get married, marriage will be an idol in your heart. If you're not content with the Lord, and you're not content with this, the status that the Lord has currently ordained for you, the gift that He's given to you, if you're not content with that, the marriage is going to be an idol in your heart. And God delights in giving us the godly desires of our heart, not the idols of our heart. God will not share His glory with another. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the, the desires of your heart. That first half is vital. Delight yourself in the Lord. This is not just a, a, a blanket promise. The Lord will give you whatever desires are in your heart. First, delight yourself in the Lord. Let your desires be formed by God Himself. Let your greatest desires be for the Lord Himself and for glorifying Him and pleasing Him. And when you delight yourself in the Lord, when your desires are pleasing to the Lord, then He gives you the desires of your heart. But He doesn't give you the idols of your heart. He will not share His glory with another. So it's critical. If you desire to get married... It is critical that you would be content with the Lord and with the gift He has currently given to you. In the book of Hebrews, when it talks about contentment, let's actually turn there. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. I want you to see this for yourself. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 5, Hebrews 13, verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So in context, what does the believer have? The believer has a God who has promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The believer has the presence of Almighty God. The believer has been brought into relationship with God Himself. And He says here, Keep your life free from money and be content with what you have, for He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So if I am discontent with the money, amount of money I have, what am I ultimately discontent with? I'm ultimately discontent with God Himself. He has promised, I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And if we are not content because we don't have more money, then we're not satisfied with God Himself. Yet God is all satisfying. If we have God, we have enough. We've sung of that this morning. And the same goes when it comes to marital status. 
If you are discontent as a single, or it could go the other way. There are some in difficult marriages who want out. If you are discontent with your marital status, you are ultimately, as someone who knows Christ, you are ultimately discontent with God Himself. You're saying, God's not enough for me. Christ is not enough for me. This relationship that God has given me by grace with Himself is not enough for me. To be happy, I need something else in addition to Christ. So if you want to find a spouse, you need to be content. And we have to fight a spiritual battle to be content. Because we have the flesh, we have the world, and we have the devil all who are working against our being content. So it's a spiritual battle. It's a battle that must be fought. We must desire God so much that we are satisfied in any circumstance that He puts us. We are to know God to the point that we are happy with Him, that we are satisfied with Him, that we are content with Him. Oftentimes our problem is that we don't know God as we ought to know Him. We know about Him. We know that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. But we don't know God as we ought to know God. We have too small a view of God. The things of this earth loom far too large in our minds. And God is, God is far too small in our hearts. Contentment is key with these things that we are studying this morning. Contentment with God. Contentment with Christ. Well, coming back to our, our text here in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 9, Paul has said, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The application should be made from this verse to the length of engagements to be married. When you get in, engaged, you should set a wedding date right away. It shouldn't be, well, we're engaged and someday when we're ready, we'll get married. No, it shouldn't be that way. A date should be set when you are engaged. And that date should not be years away. There will be passion, certainly, between the two of you before you get married. Paul says here, if you cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Don't play around with temptation. Don't play around with it. You will just end up in regret. Set a date for the marriage, for the wedding that is not far away. Well, if you have the desire to marry, what should you do while entrusting your desire to the Lord? How can you keep your passions in check? Much could be said from Scripture, but let's think of what we have seen in our text. We have seen that as long as you are single, your singleness is a gift from God to be used in His service. 
So direct your thoughts, direct your time, direct your energy towards serving Christ as a single person. When you are consumed with serving Christ, you cannot be consumed with the desire for a spouse. You can have that desire, but if you are consumed with serving Christ, you won't be consumed by the other desire you have for a spouse. You can only be consumed with one overarching passion in your life. Be consumed with serving Christ. Christ. And that starts with focusing your mind on the things of Christ. Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Or let your mind dwell on these things. We're instructed to only have our mind dwell on things that meet these criteria. We're not to let our mind dwell on other things. So if you are single, don't let your mind dwell on I'm missing out. It would be better if I were married. How can I find someone to get married? Where is that person for me to... to, to, to Don't let your mind go down that track. Set your mind on things that are honorable, just, pure, true, lovely, commendable, of excellence, worthy of praise. You have a gift from the Lord, the gift of singleness. And while God may change that in the future, right now, this is your gift. And your purpose is to use this for the glory of God. To use this singleness in service of Christ. So set your mind on the things of Christ. Set your mind on the things of serving Christ. Don't let your mind go down a fleshly path that will not be beneficial to serving Christ. Well, the teaching that we have seen today in 1 Corinthians 7 only makes sense to you if your great ambition is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Before we were saved, we were self-centered by nature. We live in a culture that is extremely self-centered. Just look at common social media posts. It reeks of self-centeredness. Now, if you are self-centered as the world is self-centered... You read teaching like this and say, this makes no sense to me. If I have a desire to get married, shouldn't I pursue that? With all of my being? And Paul's saying, you have a gift from God to be thankful for. Use it for the glory of God. But Paul is saying, only makes sense if your great ambition is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is an ambition of every true Christian. That is an ambition of every true follower of Christ is to serve Christ. I want you to turn to John chapter 12. I'm going to read verses 23 and following. John chapter 12. We're going to... This is the last passage I'm going to ask you to turn to. In John 12, I want to begin reading in verse 23. 
Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He has in mind how He will go to the cross. Upon the cross He will make atonement for the sins of His people. And after being buried, He will be raised on the third day. And then He will ascend to the right hand of the Father. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Be, be glorified through the work of atonement, in resurrection, and ascension. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. See, because Christ calls for our complete devotion. Whoever loves his life, whoever is not willing to give up his life for Christ's sake, Whoever loves his life loses it. That is, will lose it in eternity. And whoever hates his life in this world, that is, denying oneself for the sake of Christ, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice in verse 26, when Jesus speaks of believers, when He speaks of those who follow Him, He calls them His servants. If anyone serves Me, He must follow Me. Where I am, there will My servant be also. If anyone serves Me, the Father will honor Him. This is a way of speaking of Christians, speaking of believers. Now, the amazing thing is that the one who calls us to serve him as Lord and Master first served us. In Mark 10.45, Jesus said, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you have salvation because Christ first served you. He served you in giving up his life as the ransom for you. He, he, he served you by going to the cross and dying in your place. You know, th this is the gospel. The, the, the gospel is the good news of Jesus' death upon the cross for our sins, His victorious resurrection on the third day. The gospel is the good news of God's provision of salvation, a salvation that is not uh, obtained through works of the law, a salvation that is not obtained through good deeds, but a salvation that is given by God in His grace, based on the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is received through faith in Jesus Christ. And if you believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have been justified by God's grace. You've been declared righteous. You were Guilty before God. You were condemned by God. You were under the wrath of God. But when you believe in the Son, God justifies you. As the judge declaring you righteous. Giving you a right standing with God that's purely of grace. Bringing you into relationship with Himself through the finished work of Christ. So, the one who believes in Jesus Christ has been saved because Christ first served us. Jesus has come as Savior and Lord. He is the eternal Son of God 
who became flesh. And he calls for sinners, he calls sinners to come to himself for salvation and to follow him as those who have been saved, to follow him as Lord. He's the master. He is the Lord. We have been redeemed by his precious blood that we might now serve him. And it's a joyful service. Serving the one who served us by laying down his life for us. Serving our Savior. Serving the, the one who is our rightful Lord, who is worthy of all of the, 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 the love and the worship of our hearts and our lives. What we see here in this passage is both that it was necessary for Christ to be glorified in the cross and resurrection. The one who believes in him is a servant of Christ. True life is found in Christ. And when you know Christ as your life, you want to serve him. It's a joyful thing to serve Christ. And so if you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, then what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians 7 can start to make sense. In whatever position you are, it's a gift from God to be used in service to Christ. Our focus should not be to maximize our happiness by chasing the desires of our heart, Chasing the dreams of this world that really don't come from delighting in God Himself. Rather, as one who is redeemed, we want to serve Christ with everything. In whatever position He has placed us, without whatever gift He has given us, we want to serve Him. And when we find our joy in serving Christ, and knowing Christ, then we can be content in whatever condition the Lord has called us and to whatever status He calls us in the future. And so this is what this passage is about. It says, we're not to live lives like the world. The world has its things that it pursues. We're not to pursue the things of this world. We're to pursue Christ we're to serve Christ and serve Christ's people. And only when you see that can everything else come into its proper place. May the Lord use what we have studied together uh, for His glory in our redeemed lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for sending Jesus for us. The bread of life the light of the world, the one who gives living water. Lord Jesus, you have satisfied our souls. We are content with you and with every spiritual blessing that you've given to us in the heavenly places. And we need to be content with the earthly circumstances that you have currently given to us. Lord, help us as believers to recognize that if we're single or we're married, either way, it's a gift from you. And help us, Father, 
to use that gift to serve you and to serve your body, to serve your purposes. May that be what our lives are about. Not living for ourselves. We once lived for ourselves, and we've done that enough. But you've redeemed us by the blood of Jesus that we might now live for another, for the one who died for us and who was raised. May that be our heart ambition. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.